welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. You're hanging in there. It's the long after lunch double session. So far, I haven't heard anybody snore at least, so that's good. I haven't seen anybody nod off either. So, last session before our Q and I'm going to call it Q and R because I don't know if I'll be able to come up with any answers, but I can respond. Uh, so Q and R is usually Q and R is usually safer. Uh, finding and mentoring volunteers in today's and tomorrow's church. Actually, before we do this, um, New Small Church has been up there a lot. Sometime very soon, probably this week, I will actually be moving all of my content uh, away from New Small Church. I won't even be blogging for Christianity Today anymore. It was all going to go to a new website at carlvaders.com. So my name, carlvaders.com. If you want to, you can actually, it's 90% done. You can actually go there and kind of see... Uh, what it's about to look like, but that will happen very soon uh, within the next couple of weeks. Now, the notes that for Narara, they will stay there. We're not closing that down. That simply is not where I'm going to be operating. So even at that site and at Christianity Today and at Carl Vader's, all three of those sites are all kind of in the middle of stuff. So if you go there, there's incomplete things on all three of them because we're in the process of moving it all over to carlvaders.com. Uh, a bunch of things will be happening in the next year. I'll be starting a podcast in the next few months. We're going to do a bunch of video content of this teaching, uh, hopefully this summer. So we've got a bunch of things that will be coming soon through that, but that's where it will all be moving to. Um, in, in, in what I do now in speaking to a lot of other pastors, uh, first of all, Shelley's in my gratefulness for opportunities like this we simply don't know how to express. Uh, to God, to you, um, to so many churches and pastors that we've met, that we would have the opportunity to travel like we've been traveling and to be able to share like we've been sharing out of our small church context is simply beyond our, our wildest expectations of what we believe the Lord would ever do uh, through us. So we just want to say a huge thank you for this opportunity, first to the Lord, secondly to you for giving us the chance to do this. Um, uh, people come to me every once in a while and will say, you know, I read this, it helped my church or whatever. You're probably tired of hearing that. We are never tired. of. I, how can you ever get tired of hearing that what you do has an impact on churches and on people's lives? It is beyond a blessing. And we are... We are extraordinarily blessed by that. But part of doing this now means that I'm having to monitor a conversation that I never bothered with before, which, quite frankly, almost entirely takes place online. So I want to know what's happening in the general church culture and in the, in, the, in the overall church leadership culture especially. So part of what I do is there are tools that you can use online that helps you to monitor basically all of all of the conversations that are happening out there on social media, on blogs, on websites, and so on. And so I'm constantly monitoring the conversation. What's currently happening? What's the big conversation going on in church leadership now? So that I can speak into it. Or, or at least if I'm not speaking to it, I can say what I say without looking stupid because I'm not acknowledging something over here that everybody else seems to know and I'm clueless on. I've got to stay clued in. And one of the conversations that's going on right now that I have heard, I'm going to use a sentence, and some version of this sentence is being used a lot now in church leadership circles. And it's something like this. Your church cannot be a great church if the pastor tries to pastor everyone. 
I keep hearing that. And I'm going to say I disagree with what they're saying, but I think I agree with what I think they're trying to say. Does that make sense? I think I agree with what they're trying to say, but I disagree with the way they say it. What I think they're trying to say is this. Pastor, if you have to come up with every idea, show up early, unlock the doors, turn on the heat or air con, um, greet everybody, lead in worship, preach the sermon, close in prayer, get back to the door, greet everybody before they leave, close everything down, do the Wednesday night Baba study, visit everybody in the hospital. If all of that ministry in the church has to be done by you, your church will never become a great church because you will cap the effectiveness of the church. If that's what they mean, they are correct. However, what I just described to you is not pastoring, it's enabling. Unfortunately, that's what some of us do, and we call it pastoring, but the Bible never calls that pastoring. That is not the description of the pastor in the Bible. What we've done is we've taken on all the ministry onto our shoulders, and then we go, oh, I don't know why I'm so tired all the time. Well, because you're trying to do all the ministry for a church, and they're intended to do the ministry with and for each other. So here's the good news. You don't have to pastor harder. You don't have to pastor less. You don't have to stop pastoring but we can all pastor more biblically. Now, how do we pastor more biblically? I actually did a study on this a few years ago because I thought if I'm going to talk to pastors, I need to really do a good deep dive study on pastoring in the Bible. So I'm going to look at all the passages that mention pastoring. So I got out my Bible software and I put in the word pastor and it came back with zero results. So I put in pastoring and it came back with zero results. This must be broken. I put in pastors, and it came back with one result. Here I'd been a pastor for over 20 years, and I did not know that we pastors get one mention in the Bible. One. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And in that passage, the only place we get a mention, we don't even get that spotlight all to ourselves. We got to share that spotlight with apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers the five-fold ministry. And in that one spot where pastors get a mention and we share it with the four other ministry gifts, we are given one command. I now call it the pastoral prime mandate because it's the only place pastors are mentioned and it's the only command we're given there and it's this, to equip God's people for works of service so that we will become mature, so that we will be united. So that's sort of the, But the, the actual activity is this. Now, here's the deal. Too many of us perceive pastoring as doing ministry for them. That's not our calling. Our calling is to equip them to do the works of ministry for each other and for those who are not in the church. We are not primarily the, in our function as pastors, we are not primarily the doers of the ministry in the church. We are primarily the equippers of others to do the ministry. And that applies to church of every single size. Which means, if you are pastoring biblically and we are equipping God's people to do ministry, then we are not capping the effectiveness of the church by pastoring more. Because we can always equip more. Now, we, as a church gets bigger, our equipping will change the way it looks. When it's smaller, our equipping will happen more one-on-one -on -one and mentoring. When the church grows, we'll do that more through other people who, who do more pastoral hands-on thing. But we, as long as we keep the equipping mandate in mind, there is no limit to the number of people we can pastor if we're pastoring biblically. That is, how are we equipping God's people to do works of service? Now, we're going to take this and we're going to add this in now to the two things we already know every healthy church should do. There are three essential elements to a healthy church. 
healthy and effective church. The great commandment, the great commission, we already talked about those two, right? And now let's add this, what I call the pastoral prime mandate of equipping God's people. Here's how most churches move from ill health to health. There are some churches out there that aren't doing any of three. When I showed up at our church 27 years ago, we were not equipping God's people. We were not reaching our community. We barely liked each other, and the worship was horrible. And everybody who was, back, was, was in the church back then went, yeah, that was us. So when we showed up, we had a very unhealthy church. We weren't doing any of those. So what did we do first? What did I tell you we did for the first seven years? Worship services and meals. Love God, love others. Great commandment. That's all we did for the first seven years. We, did, we loved God, we loved each other. We learned to like each other. <laughs> and we learned what it meant to fall in love with Jesus again. That's all we did. When we did that, we got to the point where we had a, hell, a loving but ineffective church. We were very loving. It was a kind of thing, wow, I don't know why people aren't coming here. Why aren't we having an impact? Well, because we're not doing the second part, which is why, remember, I brought it to the leadership. I said, what should we do now? And we said, let's take this and let's bring it to the community. In other words, let's add the Great Commission to the Great Commandment. So some of us are in churches, and we're wondering, why isn't our church having an impact on the community? The church is so loving, and everybody gets along. When we gather on Sunday, there's such a great sense of the presence of the Lord, so we're having great worship. Why aren't people coming? Because you're only doing the great commandment. You're not doing the great commission. It's all inward-focused, which is great, but now let's take that blessing and share it with others. Here's the deal. When you add to the great commandment the great commission, but you're still not equipping God's people, you know what that leads to? Overworked pastors and passive members. Remember what I told you when we grew from 200 to 400? I then went to the leadership and asked them, what? Can we hire a staff for 600? Why? Because the leaders were worn out. Why? Because we were doing all the work. We had added 200 more passive members. And so we were just adding a burden to the, to the pastoral staff because we were not equipping our people to do the leadership. We were just adding more passive members that gave a, put a greater burden on the staff. So what, what, what have we done over the last 7 to 10 years? We have added this third element of equipping God's people. That's why I said earlier, if we doubled in the next two years, we could do it with a hire, without hiring a single person from the outside. Why? Because we've been equipping our people. And so now we're at a point where we are a healthy and effective church. The reason I can be with you here today, Shelly and I are here in Australia for five weeks doing five conferences. We go home for 10 days and then we head off to, Monta uh, to Arizona and Montana. We're gone about 30 to 35% of the time. And we've been doing this for almost seven years now. How can we do that and be, still, still be pastoring a church at home? Because we've equipped our own people to take care of themselves. They're doing, they're doing a great job. They, they basically don't care if I'm gone because other people can do my job just as well as I can, some of them better. And that is not a threat to me. That is a great relief to me and a great release to me in the ministry. So just as we have sent other people off to do full-time ministry, they now see what I'm doing here as an extension of our church, and they bless that, and they send us, and they're supportive of it, and we've literally never heard a single person say, why aren't you home more often taking care of us? Because everybody at home right now is better taken care of than when I was doing it all. We, it's not easy to get there. But it is possible to get there. So how do we start getting there? Let me start you walking through some process of how we get there. Again, I have a lot of conversations with small church pastors. 
one of the questions I've regularly received is this. Especially if pastors are bivocational, or sometimes we call them co-vocational. They're spending 40 hours a week in a secular job to pay the bills and then pastoring when they can. And that's a very, very big challenge. And when I talk to pastors, especially bivocational pastors, a question they often ask me is something like this. Which one should I do? Should I pastor the people I've got, or should I try to reach the people I don't have? Because it feels like, with my limited hours, every hour I spend pastoring the flock, it's an hour that I'm not doing outreach, and for every hour I'm reaching people outside the church, it's an hour that I feel I'm not doing pastoral care. I'm robbing from one or the other because I have limited time. Where should I put my emphasis? And here's my answer. Equip the people you have to reach the people you don't have. If we do the biblically mandated pastoring and we have four other ministry gifts to help us do that, so the pastors, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, right, we're all doing it together, all equipping God's people, and then they become equipped to do the job. Part of that equipping is to go out in evangelism. As an example, I do not have the gift of evangelist. I have... Every time I've done any kind of leadership gifting survey or whatever, and anybody who knows me knows, I have the gift of leadership, I have the gift of teaching, I have the gift of pastoring. Everything else is like at zero and lower. You want to come to me for the gift of mercy, you're in the wrong place. Hospitality, no. I'll forget to put out plates, okay? Because it's all right there in those three. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have the command to evangelize. So I'm not shirking my command, but I recognize I don't have that gifting. Some people, you know, they get on, a, they, they, they get on the commuter train and three people are giving their lives to Jesus by the time they get home. Right? I get up and I do the best evangelistic sermon you ever heard and nobody responds to the call. I don't have the gift. It doesn't mean I'm stopped doing it, but I don't have the gift. However, as a teacher, leader, and pastor, I can equip evangelists. I can equip people with the gift of hospitality, with the gift of mercy, with the gift of prophecy. I don't have those gifts, but I can equip those who do have those gifts and then see all of the gifts blossom in the church as we do that together. So it multiplies. If all of the burden is on me and I don't have the gift of evangelism or I don't have the gift of mercy or I don't have the gift of whatever gift you want to name on the list of about 30 that the New Testament seems to list, if it all rests on you, then... It's, it's never going to happen. But if we follow what Jesus says, the leaders of the church are called to equip those and then all the gifts get done because I, I may not be an evangelist, but I can equip evangelists. So how do you start equipping them? How do you start equipping people, whatever the gifting is? Step number one, start with one. Don't start with a class. We're going to do mentoring, remember. Start with one. Find one person. When I first showed up in our church 27 years ago, uh, about a year before we came, there had been a church split over, of all things, worship music. I don't know if that happens in Australia ever, but in, in America, they have, they, we have arguments over worship music. I know. It's strange, right? Yeah, I know what happens here, too. Right? So we had a big argument over worship music. The church had split in half. The youth pastor and the music minister left in a huff, and everybody got upset. They were down to almost nothing. There was one kid in the youth group who decided, well, let's call the youth together to pray for the church, and then the next week, let's pray for the church again. Then the next week, let's pray for the church again. And after a few months, they looked around and said, I, th I think we have a home-built youth pastor. By the time I showed up, here was this kid. He was leading the youth group and had no idea what to do. He just had the heart for it, and the need was there. 
So every week we'd sit down, and I thought, I thought, he's the only one in the church who's young enough and naive enough to not know how bad this church is. <laughs> so I'm going to use his youth, passion, and inexperience and um, try to help him move forward, because everybody else was too tired and too cynical. So we would sit down once a week. He was so young, I would have coffee. He would have chocolate milk. That's true. And I just, I, 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 he was my one. And I mentored him for years, just him. Two years ago this month, I stepped aside as the lead pastor of my church, and he became the pastor. We've worked together for 27 years now. And he now has taken on what I've mentored to him, and he has now mentored others. And he's way better at it than I have ever been. So why can I leave? Because two years ago, he took over my job. I'm now the teaching pastor of the church. So when I get, go home, I get to preach. I do counseling. I do a couple other things that I have real strengths in and that don't bear, weigh me down. And I don't have to go to board meetings. Woo! <laughs> and he's taking on a ministry that makes sense for him that I have helped to mentor him into. And under him, we have others that I mentored him, and he mentored them, and other people that I've mentored. And we have all, we have this wonderful network of leaders. We are so leadership heavy right now. It's crazy. People visit our church and cannot believe the volunteerism spirit of our church. Seven years ago, eight years ago, certainly 10 years ago, it was not the case. Today, we'll blow you away. I don't know another church that does any aspect of ministry better than ours of any size. Now, we do it in a different way than the bigger churches will do it, and we'll do it in a different way than your small church does it. But we do it in an extraordinary way because I started with one, and then he took on one, and then I took on a different one. And over the years, one by one, we did it. Now, if you're going to start with one, who do you start with? You find leaders by looking for servants. Here's an example. I was walking into the church a few years ago, and I saw three kids coming in front of me, youth, uh, youth and they were far ahead of me. And I saw there was a broken coffee cup by the front door, and one of them didn't see it, walked past it. The second one saw it and kicked it aside like, what's wrong with the janitor? Why wasn't that picked up? The third one saw it, went over, picked it up, walked along, dropped it in the garbage, kept going with his friends. So at the end of the service, I found that third kid and I said, hey, come here, I want to talk to you. You're not in trouble. <laughs> Pastor, if you ever do that to a kid after a service, say, come here, tell them right away they're not in trouble, unless they are. Um, you're not in trouble. And I told him about the coffee cup and he was so naive. He said, was I not supposed to do that, Pastor? <laughs> I said, no, it was perfect. I said, I think you may be a leader in the church. He said, because I picked up a broken coffee cup? I said, yeah. And you notice, I didn't say I think you might become a leader. I said, I think you might be a leader. I said, here's what I want you to do. You know how at the end of the service you help tear down the chairs? Yeah. I said, next week have a friend help you. That's all? Yeah, that's all. Okay. Next week I look around, he's got three friends helping him. And I go, I got me a leader. Right? I gave him a, so I found a servant, I gave him a simple test of leadership, and he passed it. Now, if the next week he hadn't and he was still helping, I'd say, hey, did you forget it? Oh, I'll do it next week. And if two or three, four weeks went by and he didn't have anybody helping, I'd go, you know what? I don't have a leader yet, but I got me a really good servant. If you start with servants, you can't lose. Because even if that servant doesn't step into leadership, you still identified a willing servant, and that's always good. Now, it turns out he stepped up into that leadership, and he did it really well. But you start with servants, and here's why. It's easier to teach a servant to lead than it is to teach a leader to serve. Yeah. 
right? I've, I've, I had one pastor tell me a little while ago, he says, oh, that's so true. I've had two, two churches. I came to the first one. I looked at the, the resumes of the church board, and I thought, this is going to be great. He's CEO of a company, starter of his own business, all this stuff. Worst board I ever had, a bunch of alpha dogs trying to out-alpha each other. And he said, I came to my current church, and I looked at the leaders, and I thought, this is going to be terrible. Nobody's led anything. It's a stay-at-home mom. It's a plumber. It's just regular folks. And he said, best, best board I've ever had. Not because they're just going to say yes to me, but because they know how to work as a team. They're willing servants. So you start with a servant. It's easier to teach a servant to lead than to teach a leader to serve. So how do we start raising our leaders up to maturity? How do we find more leaders? We use the Jethro system. We know the story, right? God, through, God uses Moses to free the land from the, 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 the Hebrews from Egypt. They make it through the Red Sea, and in a matter of probably just months, they're, they're out um, just about at, uh, at, the, at the mountain where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments, and um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, meets them. And I, I love this little passage. It's in Exodus chapter 18. He watches his son-in-law, so the husband of his daughter and the parent of his grandchildren, as from, the Bible says, dawn till dusk, sun up till sundown, all he does is moderate the disputes for the entire nation. He just sits there all day and does nothing but try to moderate disputes between a nation of about two million people. And Jethro's response to this is, I think, one of the most understated statements in all of scripture. I love it. Exodus 18, 17, Jethro says literally, quote, what you are doing is not good, close quote. <laughs> right? Wonderfully understated. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. Teach them, the people, this is now in Exodus 18, 20, teach them his decrees and instructions. Raise them up. Disciple them. Show them the way they are to live. Disciple them and how they are to behave. Disciple them. Equip them, and then select capable men from the people who fear God, trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain. Disciple them, then find people with strong character, and appoint them over what? Thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. I'll put it up in reverse. Ten, fifty, hundred thousand. Now, I've heard this taught in big leadership conferences because it's got the thousand in there, so, right? But small church pastors often look at that and go, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't even have 100 people in my church. Some, I, some, I don't even have 50. But here's the thing. Start with a servant, and then give them a level 10 leadership test. Don't look for level 50 leaders. Don't look for level 100 or level 1,000 leaders. Find a servant. Have, have somebody help you stack chairs. That's a level 10 leadership test. Right? It doesn't mean 10 people exactly. It means basic beginning leadership. And he brought it along, had three people helping him. That's a great level 10 leadership test. Now, if later on he had come to me and said, you know, Pastor, I've been doing this for weeks now. I've got the friends. I've noticed that we've got to do the same thing every week. Would you mind if I put together a schedule a couple months at a time for people to set up and tear down and then you don't have to worry about it at all? Then I'd go, oh, we've got to listen to level 50 leader now. Right? And then maybe he becomes in charge of an entire department, and at that point, we got a level 100 leader. So here's the deal. If you pastor a church of 50, you should be looking for servants so that you can train five of them to become level 10 leaders. And out of that five, see which one has a, a, enough leadership to step up as a level 50 leader. 
If you pastor a church of 100, you should be looking for 10 level 10 leaders. And out of those level 10 leaders, two of them will step up to be level 50 leaders. And out of those two level 50 leaders, see if one of them will step up to be a level 100 leader so you can occasionally go on holiday and not have to worry about what's happening at home. But don't start with someone who can duplicate what you do. Start with someone who can help stack chairs and have others help stack chairs with them. Find a servant, give them a level 10 leadership test. If they pass the level 10 leadership test but never step up to 50, that's still not a loss because for every level 50 leader, we need five level 10 leaders. So if they stay at level 10, that's great. We need a lot of them. If one of them steps up to level 50, that's great because we need at least one of those as well. Start with the 10, start with simple, and, that's part, and then the part of the discipleship is going to be personalizing it for each person on their journey to leadership and discipleship and mentoring and so on. Now, before we finish off, let's take a quick look into the future a little bit. I'm not a prophet. I don't pretend to be one. But let's take a look at some of the trends that are happening and where it might go as far as leadership is concerned. New generations are not going to build the kind of churches that our parents built. It's beginning to happen. It's going to get even more so in the next generation or so. There is a shift happening between generations, and it's not like, you know, every generation that has ever come along throughout history is convinced they're smarter than their parents. Every generation. What's happening now is not just that. It is something else entirely. We are right now in the middle of a cultural shift that is at least as big as the Reformation. It doesn't have a singular leader like a Martin Luther, uh, but it does have a printing press type technology. I hold in my hand the most, powerful the, the most powerful tool that has ever been devised. If the pen is mightier than the sword, how much more powerful is the mobile phone? In my hand, I hold a better, more high-resolution video camera than George Lucas had when he shot Star Wars by multiple generations. I've confirmed this with people who actually know. I hold in my hand, for free, on apps, a better editing suite than he had when he shot Star Wars. And I hold in my hand a faster, stronger, more worldwide distribution system than any television network had on 9-11. That is indisputable. So this is, technology is driving it, but just like the Reformation, it wasn't just the printing press, it was also a change in theology, in economics, in philosophy, in sexuality, in morality, in arts, and all of those things are happening right now too. All of those things are having big, big, big shifts right now, right? So the next generation is being raised with totally different value systems for all of those things being driven by the most powerful technology we've never seen. We have not yet begun to anticipate the changes that it's causing. So everything is changing, including the kind of churches that will be built. Why? Because every generation builds the kind of churches that the people around them need. And the kind of churches that we've had met the need of previous generations. That type of church is not going to meet the need of future generations. The message we preach will never change, but the method by which we preach it to them has to change or they're not going to hear it. They're speaking a different language now. We've got to learn their language. So here's the biggest change that I see in generations, and it's going to affect us as we try to minister and as we try to reach out especially to the next generation. Previous generations had relationships, and they built structures. So if you take a look at just a generation or two back, back to my parents' or grandparents' generation, especially the generation that came out of World War I and World War II, 
Before World War I, we were almost entirely an agrarian society. Before World War I, it was weird if you had a toilet inside. After World War II, it was weird if you didn't have a toilet inside. That shift happened real fast. And the shifts are happening even faster now. So previous generations had relationships. You knew the people in your community. You'd walk down the street and you'd say hi to so-and-so. You knew the butcher, you knew the baker, you knew the person who delivered milk to the door. You knew everybody. Today, you bought stuff from people you've never known before and didn't even think about asking their name. We don't have those relationships anymore. So what happened was the previous generation built these structures. They put in the highways, they put in the, the, the electric lines, they put in internet, they built all these structures, and they also gave us the first divorce and separation culture in our, in our history. And so this generation has stuff. Boy, do we have stuff, some really cool stuff. But our relationships are collapsing. So the current generation has structures, and we need to build relationships. That's the biggest change that's happening right now. So we have a structural approach to church. Because in a previous generation, that's what they needed. Today's generation doesn't have a structural approach to church. They need relationships. This is why the songs have changed. Yes, I'm going there, and I left it till the very end. <laughs> I remember a few years ago when the song Good, Good Father came out. I'm sitting there in the front row, they start this song. And the first line goes, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. Now I'm sitting on the front row and I'm the pastor, so I can't let them see my eyes roll into the back of my head. I'm looking at the screen going, I don't even know what that means. A thousand stories of what they think you're like. And then it gets worse. Second line. But I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night. And at that point, I just pretend like I'm in prayer. It's like, ah. The only time I want to sing about tender whispers of love in the dead of night is if I'm preaching on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> and then it gets to the chorus. You're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. And I look around as people that I know and love, some of whom I've pastored for over 20 years, are breaking in their seats. I look around as just behind me and to my right. There's a mom and her three kids. On two occasions, I've had to physically stand between them and their abusive father. And I watch as all four of them have their hands raised and they are singing, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. And I watch as their identity begins to change from victim to child of the God who loves me. And I realize every song, every generation sings the songs they need to sing. And I don't have to get it. I don't have to like it. I'm, I'm a grown Christian. I, I have learned to worship Jesus singing songs I don't like. Because that's what grown-ups do. So if you're a grown, mature Christian and you're upset about the new songs, I have one word for you. Get over it. 
If you're a mature Christian, act like one. I don't need to sing the song I like. Let's sing the songs that the immature Christians like, that the non-Christians like, because they need the help. I don't need it. I'm good to go. We got to stop it. It's, it, it. it's completely unnecessary. This generation has the stuff they need to sing. They need, really, they need to sing songs about relationship. And yes, they have to sing that song over and over and over and over. And, and here's why they need to sing it over and over again. Because when the song is about relationships, repetition drives it into the heart. It's not about my head anymore. It's about my heart. Now, if a, if a song has bad theology, just don't sing it. But if the song has kind of shallow theology, I wish it was deeper. If you wish the theology was deeper, preach a better sermon. The song is not about theology. The song is about relationship. It's the nature of music. It's the nature of that art form. It touches the emotion. And so, previous generations, my grandfather was not going to sing about tender whispers of love in the dead of night. <laughs> wasn't going to happen. He was singing, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. I don't even know what a bulwark is, but if it's never failing, I'm in. Why? Because they needed songs of structure. Because they were coming out of an agricultural society. They were dealing with war and poverty and all kinds of things that we have fixed a lot of, thank God. But we've broken other things. And so now, you've got a kid sitting in your community right now as we talk. There is a kid in your community sitting on the edge of their bed, not sure what gender they are. Do not go on Facebook and laugh at that. How dare you? This is brokenness. This is not something to criticize or laugh at. This is something to pray about with tears and pleading. God, help this generation that is so broken, they don't know what gender they are. We need a different type of approach to church to reach those kind of problems because we never had those problems before. We've got to be open to that new way of thinking. We've got we've to change that. Now, if your church has seniors, people often ask me, does the church have to get young in order to be impactful? Can I, ha can I have a good church that reaches out to seniors? Yes, you can have a good church that emphasizes seniors, but you need to remember these four words. I'm, I'm serious about it. Four big words that will change your ministry to seniors. You ready? Yeah. Grandma went to Woodstock. Think about it for a moment. Think about the implications of that. That is a huge four words. We're dealing with seniors like the previous generation, right, that listened to classical music and had the, you know, had the, had the bowl of plastic fruit on the table, right? That's not grandma anymore. Grandma didn't listen to Montavani. Grandma listened to Led Zeppelin. That's a different generation. Right? Right? I got some grandmas going, oh yeah. <laughs> right? That changes. So, can you minister to seniors? Yes, but make sure you're ministering to today's seniors. 
and then think in a decade they'll be different again. So you don't have to change. You don't have to have the daily process change, but you got to be thinking about the next decade by now at least. So yes, you can minister to seniors, but it's got to be to today's seniors. No matter how we do it, we've got to minister to today's generation. Now, here's the thing. If you've got a generation that has the structures and needs to build relationships, there's literally no better place on earth for them to find and build good relationships cross-generationally than in a healthy, vibrant, effective, loving, small church. We have what they're looking for. They just don't know it yet. And some of us haven't figured it out yet. So quit saying, this is where our church is and you better show up. We got to start going where they are, speaking the language they're speaking, meeting them at the place of their problem, because the gospel is the answer to all of that. It's good news. We've just got to share it a little better. Thank you, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Cheese.